Good morning. Let's pray together. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Father, we thank you for your faithful love. Thank you that you have demonstrated that love toward us in Christ through a new covenant that is eternal. And so, Father, I pray that as we think about marriage, as we think about covenant, as we think about what Jesus said about divorce, I pray that you would draw us to this love that will never let us go and let us delight in you and then delight in reflecting that love that you have shown to us so that our marriages, our homes might reflect your very glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come to this section in the Sermon on the Mount dealing with divorce. This is a difficult subject. Just ask anyone who has been through a divorce or children whose parents have divorced. Divorce tears apart the one flesh union that is established by marriage. And the tearing of flesh is always painful. Have you experienced the tearing of your flesh? Uh, I cut myself accidentally with a knife once, a deep cut, took several stitches to close it. It was a painful experience, and I still carry a scar. And we're surrounded by people who carry scars like that, scars that are deeper than that, scars from divorce, and it's no wonder that Scripture tells us God hates divorce. But Jesus brings it up here in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, and so we won't avoid it. That's one of the benefits of expository preaching. We take passages as they come, many of them on topics we would just as soon avoid. But if this message can help someone think twice about something that our culture has come to accept as normal, then maybe it's worth the effort. We're going to look at three different perspectives this morning. We're going to look at the secular perspective, secular culture, and then religion's perspective, and then Jesus' perspective. Each one of those three perspectives has very different assumptions, and each one has very different outcomes. And because our passage on this subject in the Sermon on the Mount is only two verses, and because Jesus expands on it in chapter 19, uh, using much of the same language, we're going to look at both passages. So uh, we looked at Matthew 19 just a couple minutes ago. If you would keep your finger in Matthew 19 and in Matthew chapter 5, that would be helpful. We begin, though, with a point that doesn't come directly from either of those two passages it's the perspective of the culture, but I think we need to set the stage for what Jesus says about divorce by looking at the culture of his day and looking, considering the culture that we live in as well. So let's think about culture's perspective. The common practice in any secular culture 
is to look at marriage as a relationship of convenience, to consider it a private matter between two people, nothing more. To see no accountability to God because in a secular culture, God's not a factor. And because he's not a factor, we are on our own. In a secular culture, there is no ultimate accountability. So if marriage is a matter of convenience between two people and it becomes inconvenient, what do you do? You just end it. If my own needs and my own desires are all that matters and there is no ultimate accountability, then marriages and spouses can be thrown away. So in a secular culture, whether it's the the heathen culture of the ancient Near East or a more advanced secular culture that we're living in today, you end up with throwaway marriages and throwaway people. In the culture of the ancient Near East, any reason to end a marriage would do. That could be bad temper or bad cooking. It could be being fed up with your spouse's mannerisms or finding someone that you are more attracted to. Any excuse would do. Today, all we need to do is cite irreconcilable differences and the machinery of divorce begins to grind away. It's really sad to see. I have known faithful spouses whose husband or wife divorced them, and all they could do by objecting to the divorce, by resisting it, was to slow the process down just a bit. It continued, though, to grind away until it achieved the end that the divorcing spouse wanted. And in a secular culture with no ultimate accountability, an unwanted spouse can just be tossed aside. In the ancient Near East, all a man had to do was to say, I divorce you three times and put his wife's sandals outside the tent. In our present age, it's a little more complicated than that, but the devastating results are the same. Throwing a spouse away may make an angry spouse feel triumphant for a little while, but it does irreparable damage in the life of other human beings. Anyone who's been through divorce knows how personally devastating it can be. Divorce is the leading cause of poverty among women and children in America today. And there's a ripple effect. It affects far more than two people. It affects entire family systems and for multiple generations. A system is like a mobile that we might hang in a nursery. It's got these these little pieces of it that hang on different different strands coming down from a, a wire or some sort of structure. What happens when you take any one of those away? The entire system is thrown off. You you can tinker with it a bit. You can try to move some things around, but the system itself is, is more than the individual components of the system. 
You can replace the one that you have taken away, but it won't be exactly what it was before. It doesn't ever fully return to equilibrium. And so children of divorce grow up not learning from their parents how to work through issues because they didn't see issues worked through in a healthy way in their home. And they're more likely to fall into the same traps and repeat the same behaviors that they saw exhibited for them. But that's how it goes in a secular culture where God is not a factor. And that increasingly is the way it is in our culture. Secularity is increasing. Even in my lifetime, I have seen secularity increasing. People used to live by a Judeo-Christian ethic, whether they uh, were believers or not. Culture today is far more secular than it was when I was a child. And the advance of the gospel is the only thing that will turn that around. We need to be salt and light, as Jesus said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. We need to arrest the decay and point people to God. It's the only hope our culture has. So the perspective of secular culture is that God is not a factor and that marriage is a private matter between two people. And without ultimate accountability, you end up with throwaway marriages and throwaway people. That brings us to the second perspective, and that is religion's perspective. Let me just call your attention to a couple of verses. First, from Matthew 5, verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And then over in chapter 19, verse 7, where it says, They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Religion's perspective. In contrast to that cultural mess of a secular perspective comes religion. Instead of divorce being a private matter between two individuals, we see some degree of accountability to God in a religious setting. And in that accountability comes an attempt to control the chaos. Jewish law and Jewish midrash, which is commentary on the scriptures, spelled out what was grounds for divorce and spelled out what had to be done to end a marriage, besides just putting the sandals outside the door. And different schools of thought then emerged and defended their interpretation. So Matthew 19 reveals a controversy between two schools of thought, two different rabbis, Hillel and Shammai. Hillel was liberal in his interpretation of what constituted grounds for divorce. Nearly anything would do. And Shammai was more conservative allowing for divorce only in the case of marital unfaithfulness. And the question comes to us today, what constitutes legitimate grounds for divorce? And so in Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, the Pharisees try to get Jesus to pick sides in that debate. They say, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Any cause at all? Any and every cause? Hillel would say, yeah, any cause will do. 
And Shammai would say, no, only one cause. And so Jesus answers their question in verses 4 through 6 with a question of his own. He takes them back to creation. He takes them back to God's intent for marriage, God's intent for a man and a woman. We'll talk about that more in a moment, but notice that they didn't want to hear it. Take a look at this. In verse 7, ah, here we are. Jesus has just gotten done taking them back to creation, and they say to him, well, then why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? They're saying, yeah, I, I get all of that. I get what you're trying to say, but it's kind of a yeah, but. And anytime you yeah, but God's word, you can know that you are on thin ice. They did it, though, for the same reason we do it. They wanted to defend their practice. And so they twisted Scripture a bit and said, Moses commanded a man to give a certificate of divorce and send his wife away. Where did that come from? You may be interested to know that the word divorce only occurs six times in the whole Old Testament, and two of those refer to God and Israel. So only four times in the whole Old Testament are we looking at the issue of human divorce. And the best reference for this mention of a certificate of divorce is in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. Let me uh, read this for us. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then... Her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance. A lot of ifs before you get to the then, and he deals with this issue of a certificate of divorce only in passing not teaching on the subject of a certificate of divorce. He mentions it only in passing. The purpose of the passage was to keep this first husband from treating marriage so lightly that he could enter into it and exit it whenever he wanted to. Treating divorce as though it's not the devastating thing that it is. So what about that certificate? Jesus says it was concession to the hardness of people's hearts in Matthew 19, verse 8. It was intended to regulate something that had become chaotic and arbitrary. That's religion's emphasis, regulating the chaos. And so instead of putting her sandals outside the door, a man had to obtain a certificate. And that took a little bit of time 
and a little bit of effort. It required proof. It required two witnesses. To obtain a certificate, the man had to cite a specific cause. He had to cite something that could be called uncleanness, and he had to demonstrate that. Getting this certificate then would have the effect of slowing the whole process down so that maybe he would reconsider. Compare it, if you will, to obtaining a handgun today. If you wanted to go and buy a handgun, you went to a gun shop, odds are you could not return the same day with your handgun. There is, in, and it varies from state to state, but there is generally what's called a cooling off period. It takes you about three days to get one. Why? So you don't get mad at somebody, go out and buy a gun and come back and shoot him. Uh, this cooling off period allows you some time to think it over. I think it's similar. The certificate took some time and effort to obtain it would slow things down a bit, maybe cause somebody to think twice. And because the certificate stated the cause for the divorce, it would also keep the wife from becoming the subject of speculation. She couldn't be stoned then as an adulteress. If someone suggested she was an adulteress, she could just take out her certificate and say, no, no, that's not what this is about. And she would be protected from even more injustice than she'd already experienced. And the purpose of the certificate, according to Deuteronomy 24, was so that her first husband wouldn't marry her again. Marriage is not easy in, easy out. He couldn't treat it that lightly. Now, by the time of Jesus, the certificate was all that mattered. What had once been a concession had now become standard practice, something people insisted was their right. And so instead of upholding marriage and allowing God to work through marriage to refine a person's character, a person could point to his right to get a certificate and end the marriage. So what Moses allowed is interpreted as what Moses commanded. And Jesus points out Moses didn't command it. He only allowed it, verse 8. And he allowed it as a concession to the hardness of people's hearts. But it wasn't God's original intent. So secular culture sees marriage as a private matter between two people. The religious perspective sees it as something to regulate. But Jesus takes a different tack. And so we come now to Jesus' perspective. We see it in verse 32 of the Sermon on the Mount, verse five, uh, 32 of chapter 5. But I say to you, Jesus says, that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And then in uh, chapter 19, looking at verse 4 to verse 6, Jesus says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother 
and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And then drop down to verse 8. Jesus continues, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Jesus' perspective. His focus, both in Matthew 19, where he fills it out a little bit, and Matthew 5, where he states it very succinctly, is not on what constitutes grounds for divorce, and it's not on how to go about getting one. His focus is on what God intended marriage to be. Now, in Matthew 19, verses 4 to 6, Jesus takes the argument back to creation. He cites Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, about a man leaving his father and mother and being united to his wife and the two becoming one flesh. This one flesh union established by God is Jesus' focus. And he says three things about it, three things about God's intent for marriage. They are these. Uh, Marriage is intended to be exclusive. Marriage is intended to be intimate. And marriage is intended to be permanent. Let me expand on those for just a bit. First, marriage is intended to be exclusive. Verse 5 speaks of a man and his wife. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. A man, his wife, both singular nouns. Marriage is a unique bond that allows only two people. There's a famous actor who's been in the news lately who claims to have an open marriage. That is, he and his wife both welcome intimacy from other people as a part of their marriage. I would submit that what they have done is destroyed the image of marriage, which is to be a picture of God and his relationship with Israel and with his new covenant people as well. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel is condemned by the prophets every time they run after other gods. And in the New Testament, we see that marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. There's no room for other lovers. Marriage is exclusive. It's also intimate. Verse 5 says, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. One flesh. Two become one. This is more significant than we might expect. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 5, it speaks of husbands and wives not denying each other their conjugal rights, not depriving one another except for a limited time for devoting themselves to prayer. But then he makes the point that after that time for prayer, focused prayer, is over, they should come back together again. Intimacy is important in a marriage. And intimacy outside of marriage is forbidden. Paul goes on, goes so far as to say that a man who unites himself to a prostitute becomes one flesh with her. 
1 Corinthians 6, 16. Not that in, in uniting himself to a prostitute, he is replacing the one flesh union that he had with his wife, but rather he is adding to it. He's creating a monstrosity. Sex is not casual. It's serious and it's bonding. It's a big deal. There is no such thing as casual sex. We may think there is. Our culture tells us there is. But listen to Proverbs chapter 30, verse 20. It says, this is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done no wrong. Tim Keller comments on this verse, and he says this, why feel more guilt about it, this, this idea of casual sex, why feel more guilt about it than you would if you had a good meal? Only after you train yourself to take physical pleasure without the full personal commitment of marriage do the soul and body become detached. Then you can have sex without being too emotionally involved, and you just wipe your mouth. There is no casual sex. Intimacy is a huge thing. Marriage is intended to be exclusive and intimate, and it's also intended to be permanent. In Matthew 19, verse 6, it says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, some have taken this imperative verb, this command, let not man separate, as an indicative verb, a statement. So it would sound like this, what God has joined together, man cannot separate. Have you heard that, that translation, that version of it? Instead of saying, let not man separate, which is a command, they take it as a statement, man cannot separate. In other words, you can go through a divorce and your marriage may look dissolved from man's perspective, but in God's sight, you're still married. And I would submit to you that that is not what the text is saying. What the text is saying is a command, let not man separate, not man cannot separate. It's an imperative verb. It's not indicative. It's a command, not a statement. It's saying don't do it rather than you can't do it. You can. You can. You can separate what God has joined together, and he's saying don't. Don't do it. The bond of marriage can be dissolved. And Jesus says here that there is only one thing that provides the basis to dissolve it. And in both Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19.9, it's called sexual immorality. The Greek word for it is porneia, from which we get our word pornography. It refers to sexual activity outside of marriage. It violates, number one, the exclusive nature of marriage. It violates, number two, the intimate nature of marriage, and it becomes the basis for dissolving number three, the permanent nature of God's intent in the one flesh union. Sexual immorality, porneia, is a big deal. It violates the one flesh union between a husband and a wife, and it creates a monstrosity. People connected to more than one other person. 
Jesus says the person who does it commits adultery. Now, when does this adultery take place? Take a look at chapter 5, verse 32. Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. When does the adultery take place? Happens when someone enters a one flesh union with someone besides their spouse. Now, I have puzzled over verse 32 for weeks. How is it that a man who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery? When does this adultery take place? As you can imagine, the answers vary. You can look at a dozen commentaries and find a dozen different explanations. But something dawned on me just this week as I was chewing the passage over again. It's this. Our natural inclination is to focus on those questions, right? How does this take place? When does this take place? When it seems to me that Jesus' emphasis in his answer is elsewhere. While we're trying to define how and when the adultery Jesus speaks about here takes place, and who he's describing and who he's not describing, it seems to me that he is speaking more about who is to blame. Notice, that he says that a husband who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And a man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In both of those parts of verse 32, who's the focus? Who's the focus? It's the man. It's the husband that Jesus is focusing on. In the one case, the husband makes his wife sin. In the other case, he's sinning himself. And it brings to mind another passage. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 6, Jesus warns about people who cause someone else to sin. In verse 5 of Matthew 18, he's welcoming little children to himself. And then in verse 6, he says this, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, whoever causes someone to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Now notice, he's not saying nobody sinned. He's not saying nobody sinned. But neither is he pinning blame on the little ones who are caused to sin. Now look at chapter 5, verse 32 with that in mind. Jesus says, Everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Could it be that Jesus' main point has more to do with who's causing somebody to sin than it does with how and when that sin takes place? Could it be that Jesus is actively challenging men here 
in the Sermon on the Mount, who put their wives away to step up instead and be the husbands God has called us to be. Paul challenges men in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, to love their wives like Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself for her. To make her holy, anticipating the day when he would present her to himself spotless and radiant and glorious. And men, instead of looking for grounds to put our wives away, we need to be loving them as Christ loved the church. If we did that, marriages would flourish. Jesus doesn't talk in this passage about what constitutes grounds for divorce. He doesn't talk about how to go about getting one. He talks about God's intent for marriage. In chapter 19, verses 4 to 6, he takes his questioners back to creation, showing God's intent for us in creating the institution of marriage. It's about two people becoming one in every way imaginable. And in doing so, we learn and we grow and we change and we develop godly character and we learn how to grow in grace. In his book, Sacred Marriage, Gary Thomas asks, what if God gave us marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? See, God wants to use our marriages not to turn us into more selfish people who learn to insist on our own way, but into people who learn how to give grace, who learn how to grow in grace ourselves. Jesus told the Pharisees that Moses didn't command divorce. He allowed it because of the hardness of people's hearts. Isn't it amazing how Jesus keeps returning again and again to the matter of the heart. So you can make accommodations for hard hearts like the Pharisees did, or you can change hearts. That's what Jesus wants to do. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. So that's where we need to begin, with the condition of our hearts. So let me ask you, how's yours? How's yours? How's your heart toward God this morning? Is it growing in its love for God? Is it growing in its passion for God? I think I told you once about the time I managed to get John Piper out for lunch. And I said to him, you know, you're, you're maybe the most passionate person for God that I've ever met. How do you keep that going? And he said, I cry out to God for it daily. How's our heart toward God? Are we crying out for more passion for him daily? For those of us who are married, how's our heart toward our spouse? Is it what it once was, or have we allowed that to fade? We need to ask God to rekindle our heart for our spouse. Let me ask one more. How is our heart toward people who have been the victims of divorce. 
spouses and children who didn't want one, who've been tossed aside, can we show them the compassion of Christ that someone else didn't show them? When our hearts are responsive to the Spirit of God, then our marriages can glorify Him as He uses our marriages to make us more and more like His Son. Would you bow in prayer with me? Father, I pray that You would indeed use our marriages to make us more like Jesus. Father, I pray that You would teach us how to love without insisting on our own way, how to give grace rather than demanding to receive it, how to love another as you have loved us. And so, Lord, I pray that our marriages would be a reflection of your love for us and that because of that, we would be an influence in this culture that needs to not only hear about Christ, but to see his love in action. Let that be so of our marriages, that they may be a witness to you. In Jesus' name, amen.